You're listening to In Country, a podcast covering Marvel Comics, The Nom. Hello and welcome to In Country, a podcast that is taking a complete look at Marvel Comics series The Nom. I am your host, Tom Panneries, and in this episode we are going to take a look at The Nom number 21, which features more character development for Andy Clark, who we saw cleared of charges last issue with regard to the fragging of Lieutenant Alarnik. And now we'll see some development in her relationship with Nurse Jane Riley, a character we've seen a couple of times as she has tended to some of the injured men of the 23rd and previous issues. Our opening song this time around, by the way, is Your Love Keeps Lifting Me Higher and Higher by Jackie Wilson, which peaked at number 6 on the Billboard Pop Charts in October 67, which is when this issue takes place, although the song did also hit number 1 on the R&B charts. A cover by Rita Coolidge in 1977 hit number 2 on the pop charts as well. Do Not Forsake Me was covered dated in August 1988. It came out April 26, 1988, which was actually my father's 43rd birthday. Anyway, the issue is written by Doug Murray. Penciler was Wayne Van Sant. Inger was Jeff Isherwood. Phil Felix was letterer slash colorist. Don Daly was editor. Larry Hama was the consulting editor. Pat Redding was the managing editor. Tom DeFalco was the editor-in-chief. It's October of 1967, and we're on a jungle path somewhere in the 23rd's area of operations, and the squad is on night patrol. Clark and Phillips lead the men through the jungle, and Clark suddenly hits Dennis in the face with a branch, causing him to yell, Hey! Phillips tells him to shut up, lest he get all the men killed, and then they move on. A little while later, they spot what looks like a caravan of Vietnamese people transporting something. Before they can figure out what is going on, they are spotted, and the people who are in fact VC open fire. The guys do their best to regroup and fight back. One of them trips a wire, and in the midst of all the fighting, Clark goes down. Several hours and a short chopper ride later, Clark is on a bed at the Chu Chi Base Hospital with a concussion. Jane is helping keep watch on him and is worried yet relieved that it's only a concussion. She tells a fellow nurse to keep an eye on him while she goes into post-op and tends to a man who has been seriously injured. She does her best to get him to relax as the doctors reclose his stitches. A few minutes later, she worries about the poor boy, and the doctor who's working on him says that he's lucky to be alive. She snaps at him and tells him it's really tough to treat him like nothing is wrong. She then returns to his side and tells him that he has to get some sleep, and she'll do her best to take good care of him. The next morning in the recovery ward, the nurses talk about how Dr. Kendall is going to be making rounds, and obviously this is a bad thing, which we discover right away. He barges into the room, tells the men that he wants to get this over with, and begins an examination, declaring a broken arm to be better within a couple of days, and examining a soldier who stepped on a punji stick. He's about to poke at the wound when Clark grabs his hand and says, I don't think you want to hurt that man, do you, doctor? Kendall orders Clark to let go of his hand, and Clark claims to not hear him because his ears are still ringing from the landmine he tripped. 
After Clark finally lets go, Kendall yells that he'll have him court-martialed and the nurses are witnesses. Jane turns to her friend, whose name is Sue, and says, I didn't see a thing, did you? To which Sue replies, no, I don't know what you're talking about, doctor. Kendall walks off in a huff and Clark wants to know who that clown was. Jane says that it was Ian Kendall, not the best example of an American medical officer. She then asks Clark if he's okay and if he remembers anything about his encounter with the VC mine. He says he remembers. In fact, he remembers too much. And we have a splash showing choppers flying over the jungle, men marching through paddies toward a village, Phillips firing a shark shotgun, Rob Alarnik and the dog tags of White, Brooks, and Ramnarine. Jane tells him to get some sleep, and later on he goes around and takes a look at the man Jane had been taking care of earlier, who's named Jennings. Jane comes into the infirmary and tells Clark that he has a visitor. He asks when Jennings goes home, and he, she says that it will be as soon as he stabilizes. She then tells him that he shouldn't worry about Jennings. Clark's visitors are Roland and Phillips, who are glad to see that he's all right, and they make fun of his hospital gown. Phillips asks who the round eye is, and Clark introduces them to Jane. Roland presents Clark with a purple heart, and they head out. Andy takes the purple heart out of its box and pins it to Jennings' pillow, saying that he deserves it a lot more than Clark does, and tells Jennings to get to sleep. Jane then puts Clark back to work, having him help get the infirmary's Halloween party together. There's all sorts of revelry, such as bobbing for apples. All right, all right, let's bob for apples. This is the way to do it. Yeah, Lucy, you should be good at this. You have the perfect mouth for it. <laughs> My lips touch dog lips. Poison dog lips. But Clark's not in the mood. He and Jane go for a walk. She's about to tell him something when there's a VC rocket attack and Clark pushes her to the ground. When the attack is over, they return to the infirmary and Jennings is nowhere to be seen. Another nurse tells Jane that during the attack, Jennings had some sort of seizure and Jane runs out of the room. Later, Jane is crying because Jennings didn't make it. Clark tells her to settle down because that's a fact of life in the war. She tells him that she knows that, but she can't live with it anymore and she has to get out of there. She then tells Clark she's been offered a job in Tokyo and she's going to take it. In fact, she's leaving the very next day. Clark is surprised and Jane says, Tomorrow, I'm, I'm sorry, it has to be this way. The next day, Clark watches uh, Jane's helicopter take off and then returns to his hooch. Phillips starts to tease him about Jane, but Clark says that it doesn't matter and she's gone away. And then he presents Phillips with a hospital gown just for him. One of the things that we haven't seen a lot of in the NAM up until this point are women. Uh, yeah, we saw some women when Ed Marks went home, and there were incidents involving, involving Vietnamese prostitutes and dubious women when Ed was in Saigon way back in the first few issues of the series. And it's kind of be, to be expected, especially since women weren't in combat roles during the Vietnam War and would more, li more than likely be nurses. Now... This could seem very forced, kind of like how, although it was a pretty good issue, issue 19 was a little bit forced. But Clark and Jane have this friendship, and they've had this friendship for quite a few issues. So if anyone is going to have a relationship like this, it would be Clark, because he's, he's the everyman. He's the guy everybody likes, and in a sense, he's a teddy bear. Uh, plus, he's an all-around nice guy as well, and that means he'll be likely to check on his friends maybe a little more than the other guys would. Jane's been in the NOM for a while. 
uh, and her reaction to Jennings' condition and then his eventual death makes sense. Much like some of the men who have seen things that they didn't expect ever to have to see, Jane has seen just as much, and when she tells the doctor, I'm supposed to treat him like nothing is wrong, and that's not easy, it makes total sense, as does the revelation at the end that she's accepted another assignment in Tokyo. I'll get to that in a bit, but I want to start with the cover, which is by Bob Camp, and sort of depicts the scene toward the end where there is a rocket attack. Jane is walking out of the building and is dropping a tray of surgical clamps while Clark is being blown toward her. It's good in that it depicts events that will actually take place in the comic. However, Clark's arms and hands are so huge as he lunges toward her that it looks like he's mutated into, like, giant hands man or something. It's not like a drawing of Liefeldian awfulness, but it's definitely a little awkward. Other than that minor quibble with the cover, the art's once again solid. As I've said in the last few issues, I've been enjoying Wayne Van Sant and Jeff Isherwood's art, and you can really see that they've hit their stride, which is surprising to me, because when I first read these issues a few years ago, I was kind of cold in this art team. It's not that I didn't like them or anything. I think I just compared it too much to Michael Golden. But when you really look at it, many of the characters that Van Sant is penciling were introduced with his first issue as the title's permanent artist. So with the exception of, say, Rob, Sarge, and Ed, we've only seen him draw guys like Clark and Phillips, so it wasn't that weird of a transition or anything between art styles. Now, as to the story itself... The jungle action being an obvious setup for Clark spending a decent amount of time with Jane is well done. Clark gets hurt just enough so that he's not immobilized, but he does have to stick around the infirmary. And Jane is drawn to be cute, yet not some sort of badly stereotypical hot nurse. Not only that, Murray writes her as someone who has the savvy of a person that's a definite veteran in this situation. Jane and Sue talk and banter the way two people who have been working together for a while would, and the way they respond to Kendall when Clark grabs his wrist is a great comedic moment in a story that's actually pretty serious. The idea of psychological trauma has been explored a little bit, but it seems that up until this point, it's only been hinted at here and there. It's not explored in the sense that we're seeing what happened to a lot of Vietnam veterans after they returned home, but on page 18 when Clark says, I remember, I remember a lot, too much, we get a good sense of what, to paraphrase Tim O'Brien, these people are carrying with them. And we're also seeing firsthand what Jane is carrying with her as well. There's obviously an attraction between these two characters. Murray relates that well, too. Nobody tells Clark or Jane that their fraternizing is forbidden or anything like that, but something has definitely been holding him back from telling her how he feels. That could be it. It could be that he's an awkward guy. It could be he's just not very good at these things. And I honestly felt bad for him when she told him he was leaving and was so sudden. It's a tad dramatic, yes, but at the same time, as much as Clark may have been timid about telling Jane how he felt about her, she may have been timid about getting too close. Plus, she gets attached to Jennings, and that definitely motivates her to just go. I mean, I'm sure she was keeping the info about her leaving from Clark a secret because she didn't know how to tell him or didn't want to hurt his feelings, and maybe was even a little scared that he convinced her to stay. But Jennings' death obviously proves to her that she just has to cut the cord. And Clark, well, you can tell he's a bit stunned. I don't know if we ever see her again or what effect this has on Clark's character, but at least he gets back at the guys for making fun of his hospital gown. I kind of hope that after the war is over, he looks her up and see how she is doing because um, you'd hate to see that kind of be the end of everything there. But for us it is, and, and I'm going to take a quick break, and when I get back, I'll talk historical context, letters, and ads. This book 
is to be neither an accusation nor a confession, and least of all an adventure. For death is not an adventure to those who stand face to face with it. It will try simply to tell of a generation of men who, even though they may have escaped shells, were destroyed by the war. This July 28th, In Country, a podcast covering Marvel Comics' The Nom, presents All Quiet on the Western Front. I'm Tom Panneries, and to commemorate the centennial of the First World War, I will be dedicating a special episode to Eric Maria Remarque's all-time classic war novel. Along with the look at the novel, I will discuss two film adaptations, and then take a quick glance at poetry and songs of the war to end all wars. That's this July 28th at incountry.podomatic.com. Women in the United States military during the Vietnam War served in a multitude of different non-combat roles aside from nursing. Women who were enlisted often were in charge of complex data processing, stenography, and a variety of secretarial roles as well. Nurses were trained in large numbers, starting in 1963 with the Army Nursing Corps Operation Nightingale, which was a massive effort to recruit nurses. Training for these roles was an incredibly intense four-month process, and because there was such a shortage of nurses in Vietnam, many of the nurses who were sent over worked 12-hour shifts six days a week. Only one female military nurse was killed in combat, and that was First Lieutenant Sharon Lane, who was killed by enemy gunfire on the 8th of June, 1969. There were an estimated 11,000 women serving in the Vietnam War in some capacity, and 90% of them volunteered for service. There is a host of information to be found about nurses in Vietnam. This is just scratches the surface. Of course, the most famous fictional account of nurses would be the 1980s ABC TV drama China Beach, which recently got a DVD release, and hopefully I'll be able to watch and cover sometime over the course of this series. October 1967 in the Vietnam War, getting a little more specific. Uh, During October sometime, a public opinion poll said that 46% of Americans now believe the United States' involvement in Vietnam was a mistake, and most Americans believe that the United States should win or get out of Vietnam. On October 5th, Hanoi accused the United States of bombing a North Vietnamese school. October 12th, Secretary of State Dean Rusk states during a news conference that proposals by Congress for peace initiatives are futile because of North Vietnam's opposition. October 16th sees a protest in front of an Oakland military induction center in which 39 people, including singer Joan Baez, are arrested. October 17th marks the Battle of Ong Tan, which took place by the stream of the same name between the American and Viet Cong troops. The gist of the battle was that the day before, the 2nd Battalion of the 28th Infantry Regiment had found a network of VC bunkers engaged, but the commander of the 2nd Battalion decided to pull back in order to avoid a prolonged firefight. They marched in back in the next day, but were met by an ambush of heavy fire, as the VC had been anticipating them. 64 were killed, 75 wounded, and 2 were reported missing in action. From October 21st to 23rd, there's a march on the Pentagon, which draws 55,000 protesters. And in London, protesters tried to storm the U.S. Embassy. This is the protest where Allen Ginsberg symbolically tries to, quote-unquote, levitate the Pentagon. The 
Thousands of demonstrators opposed to the Vietnam War assembled in the nation's capital for a mass protest. For the most part orderly, minor scuffles did occur between the demonstrators and hecklers. A three-hour parade takes the demonstrators across the Potomac on their way to the Pentagon. The crowd estimated at about 50,000 persons was a loose confederation of some 150 groups and included adults, students, even children. It is at the Pentagon where the first test of strength comes. Military police contain the crowd, but clashes soon break out. Federal marshals arrest several who attempt to break through the protective line. Reinforcing the marshals, a second wave of MPs with fixed bayonets in scabbards move into position. Some 400 demonstrators are arrested, two soldiers are injured, and tear gas is used. Six break into a Pentagon side door, but are quickly apprehended in the day-long disturbance. The next day, campfires are lighted to hold off the autumn chill. The same weekend saw nationwide demonstrations supporting American GIs in Vietnam. The Pentagon protest was less violent in its second day of sitting in. The two-day protest ends with over 600 arrested and the widespread opinion that the demonstration made everyone a loser. Finally, on October 26th, United States Navy pilot John McCain is shot down over North Vietnam and is captured. Of course, his ordeal as a POW will be well known, and he is currently a senator from Arizona. He was also the Republican nominee for President of the United States in 2008. Incoming this month, we have somebody writing in. uh, Maybe we could see some Marines, Marine Air. Doug says, by now you've read issue 19. Um, 25 will have another Marine outfit. Somebody asking about other uh, Thai and and other uh, countries and their involvement. The Koreans, for instance, uh, Doug says, yep, we did a Thai story and uh, there's more on both them and the ROKs to come, the Republican of Korea soldiers. um, And and Ken Swanson, who was the person that had written this letter, uh, was a chopper guy. And he says, uh, you know, I'm happy you're enjoying my stuff now. There is there are a couple of letters. Herschel Whiteman tries to break down the organization chart for for a company and why there are only you know and he wonders if there are commanding officers why aren't they shown who is who is the executive officer you know why have we seen any executive officers um, you know and 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 those sorts of things you know he basically has he has questions about like you know who we've seen and why have we seen only certain people. Doug Murray says, first off, uh, you got to understand that what I listed as a typical typical breakdown is just that. It's the table of organization that shows it says each company is supposed to have. In the real world, especially in the early years of the NAM, companies tended to be shorthanded or under rank. Uh, this led to compromises and double hatting. So Lieutenant Finelli was both the platoon officer for Ed's platoon and the executive officer for the company. Poklo was the platoon sergeant. And when Top was arrested, he became acting first sergeant. Rob was a squad leader. Not that the squad leader doesn't get, have to be a sergeant and became platoon sergeant when Poclo left. Larnick was Finelli's replacement. He said, I never showed a commanding officer for a reason. The CO was like a good, like a god to the average grunt. He had all kinds of power over him and literally moved in a different league in most cases. It would be unusual for the average troop to interact with the CO, so I just don't show that happening. Now that we're getting into the big build of 68, the TOEs will be filling in and we'll see more officers and more NCOs in the near future. Okay, thanks for the interest, Doug. 
not an exciting uh, incoming this month, uh, but we do have nom notes. Howdy troops get to, got our usual assortment of the new stuff this month. Read them and try to get them in the first round. The brothers, the term all troops tend to use about each other. After all, they're all brothers in arms, brothers under the skin. Chopper is a helicopter. Chu Chi, a little hamlet not far from Saigon, the site of the base camp of the 25th Infantry, parent outfit to the 23rd. CID, Central Intelligence Division, the Army's version of the FBI, the guys who act as detectives in Army Matters. Donut Dollies, the Red Cross volunteers who brought coffee and donuts to the guys in various base camps and occasionally to the front, and it's good for morale. Pungy Steak, the classic VC booby trap. A pungy steak was a piece of bamboo that was sharpened, dipped in excrement, driven partially into the ground, and then hidden. Any unsuspecting GI who stepped on a pungy steak risked infection and worse. Rock and roll. Put the M16 on full auto and go to town. Round eye. A European girl. One with round eyes, not the slanted eyes. The acanthic folds gives to Orientals a rare sight in the nom. Scrub job. A job as an operating room nurse. Top first sergeant in the VC is the Viet Cong. Ads this month. We have an, a Capcom ad for Gunsmoke. Uh, it's high noon, you're all alone, you're quick, or you're dead. And a guy holding a revolver who looks like Antonio Banderas. I don't think that's Antonio Banderas, but it looks like Antonio Banderas. <laughs> it's gun.smoke, so I don't think it's... that. Maybe they're trying to avoid any um, copyright issues with the old TV show. Uh, you'll never have to stand in line to play Double Dragon again. Trade West brings Double Dragon to the Nintendo Entertainment System. This was big. Double Dragon was a huge game. And uh, I never actually owned the game on um, on the Nintendo, but I do remember playing it in the arcade. Uh, so yeah, that was a big deal where they actually brought it to, to, the, to the Nintendo Entertainment System. We have a Candelicious ad of a weirdly colored snake eating a candelicious thing and you can see the uh the the outline of the candle the boxy candelicious thing in his in his belly it's bigger than you figure whatever i'm sure nobody paid attention to that one east coast comics ad prices some comics you can send away for a catalog um we have the konami ad the double page konami ad with the with whip dribble spin rescue duck etc etc once again Kind of repeating ads here and there in this issue. Uh, we have a page with two ads on the top. On the bottom are comic book conventions, um, and then on the top is a Rambo game f- by acclaim for the Nintendo Entertainment System with the subhead "Freedom is Everything," and it shows Stallone firing a gun, and he's all muscled out and uh, you know bullpen bulletins this month. Profile on Craig Anderson. We have the checklist. Another editorial shuffle going around, and really, that's about it. There's not, there's not that much of a heck, heck of a, anything. Um, the Nam magazine came out this month, and this was an attempt to reprint the Nam in magazine form. Um, I want to say it was black and white. It may not have been, but I think that was a way to get it out to newsstands or different types of newsstands. The NOM also had the distinction of at least the first 12 or 13 issues being published in trade early. Uh, trades were very uncommon in the late 1980s. Um, you had Watchmen, Dark Knight, 
the occasional storyline year one things like that published uh, the dark phoenix so the nom to get published in trade as it would back in like 88 or 89 was meant that it had been selling pretty well um i happen to own the fir- the first trade and the third trade in the original prints, there were only three trades, and Volume Three goes up to Issue Twelve. Uh, and and there was, I do not think there was a Volume Four. I think as I put this back on my shelf, I think they stopped these particular runs of trades with Volume Three, which is kind of a shame because Ed Marks's story goes up through volume, through Issue Thirteen and not Issue Twelve, and it would have been cool to to have that complete Ed Mark story. Although I do believe it is in trade now. I want to say this issue is in trade as well. Um, and I think the nom has been reprinted up till about maybe 25 or 30. And then and then you have to start hunting down in the back issue bins. We have the Marvel Supermart. No stories that I particularly recognize. Um, you have Wolverine on the subscription ads saying that uh, the more titles you subscribe to the more you save and instead of I don't know who who drew this but instead of of his claws he's he's like a Swiss army knife he's got let's see I see a cheese slicer a spoon a toothbrush I think that's a fountain pen um it looks like a serrated knife a fork a, a screw a flathead screwdriver I'm sure there's a Phillips head somewhere um, it's kind of clever, and he's got a sticker on him that says, I break from Muties. Inside back cover is a Hunt for Red October. Um, looks like a board game uh, from TSR. This is before the movie came out, so it's based on the Tom Clancy novel, and it looks like a like a strategy, strategy game, um, yet... It doesn't look in terribly exciting. It looks like it's just the playing pieces are cards that you put on stands instead of like Battleship where you have little plastic battleships and that sort of thing. Uh, back cover, Betcha Bite a Chip with Chips Ahoy. There are so many chocolate chips in a Chips Ahoy cookie, it's impossible to bite a cookie without biting a chip. See if you can eat your way through the maze, biting into as few chips as possible. So you can ruin your comic by drawing yourself through the maze and trying to not hit any chips and uh, if you hit five or more chips, you bit a mouthful and have to try again. Four chips, you're a chocolate muncher. Three chips, not bad, but not a bad bit of biting, buddy. Two chips, a chewy, choosy chewer. One chip, a chip skipper. And zero chips is impossible, we told you. And you have Chips Ahoy and Chewy Chips Ahoy. And that just about does it. I'm not going to go out and get any Chips Ahoy myself, but I am going to wrap us up here. Be back next time in about two weeks. We'll be taking a look at issue 22 of the NOM. We'll be doing historical context notes and all the sorts of things that we usually do. Until then, thanks for listening. You have been listening to In Country, a podcast that covers Marvel Comics' The Nom. The Nom and all of the comics associated with it are copyright Marvel Comics, and as this podcast is intended for entertainment purposes, and I make no money off of it, no infringement is intended. Images, clips, and show notes can be found at Pop Culture Affidavit, which you can find at popcultureaffidavit.com. Feedback 
can be sent to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com and may likely be read on the air as I occasionally do email-centric episodes or segments. Thank you for listening and come back in two weeks for the next chapter in the saga of The Nah. Ah!